On today's show, we're going to do something a little bit different, and this is what we call more of a current events type of a show. There is some legislation in the United States House of Representatives called the Primary Care Enhancement Act, and so we wanted to cover that and what is in that and what it means for patients, for doctors, for everybody out there. And then uh, today, news broke from Kaiser illustrating that for the first time ever, a family's insurance premium for the year 2019 has gone over $20,000. So with this big news and with these current events, we wanted to set the stage a little bit and dive into those and what the implications are for the industry and for the people whose lives it affects. From the Freedom HealthWorks Network, this is Healthcare Americana. Today's guest is Adam Havig, president and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. The numbers bear themselves out. With a direct primary care doctor, deductibles in themselves are barriers. We know how unaffordable they can be. If you remove those barriers without removing the consumer discipline that is imposed by a high deductible plan, you have a winning combination in many different spheres, whether it's an individual with one of these plans in a direct primary care environment or employers that sponsor the lives that go into these direct primary care practices, they're seeing increases in their primary care consumption and tremendous decrease in their downstream care, the more expensive type of care. And now, here's your Healthcare Americana host, Christopher Habig. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana, the podcast exploring what healthcare really means. As I stated in the intro, we're going to do a little bit more of a focus on current events tonight. And so in, in doing so, I've asked Adam Habig, president and co-founder of Freedom Health Works, to join us again. Uh, you're going to be a familiar face on the show, obviously. So with your legal background, Adam, um, first of all, thanks for joining us and thanks for coming on again and devoting uh, another evening towards Healthcare Americana. Hello, everybody. Good to be back. Thanks, Chris. With your background as an attorney, uh, we don't like to tell a lot of people that, um, especially in the medical profession, but with your background in the, the legal space, wanted to get you on here and talk a um, little bit about what this type of legislation means for the industry, um, why it came about, how we got here, and then what people can do about it. In my opinion, no, no law and no legislation's ever perfect. So I'll let you set the stage with it. Um, you know, first of all, I'm going to start with the fact that the benefit space and insurance is in such a mess right now. As I stated earlier, the average family will pay over $20,000 in healthcare premiums, just premiums in 2019. And that is the first time ever. So there goes the Affordable Care Act, uh, not doing a whole lot for America's uh, families out there. So um, with that news just dropping today, wanted to get your thoughts on that. And then that'll lead us into discussion about the Primary Care Enhancement Act and some of the things out there that might be viewed as solutions. Yeah. And, and they really are linked because you start with the fact that it's momentous news for the first time uh, since the Kaiser Family Foundation has been tracking the average cost of health insurance for families. For the first time, that number has eclipsed $20,000. That's a big, big number. And it's huge. That's a, that's a small, that's a car. It, well, yeah. And I would go further though and say that doesn't tell the whole story because on average, the uh, worker will pay about $6,000 of that 20000 So in a sense, America's employers... Uh, who cover the cost of insurance for the majority of Americans. I think 153 million non-elderly Americans get their health coverage through their employer. So America's employers are subsidizing each individual and each family to a larger extent than ever before. 
But that still doesn't tell the whole story. They're paying a big bill. The individual's paying a big insurance bill. But then what about the deductibles? Mm -hmm. The deductibles and the out-of-pocket costs have been rising so precipitously. And those are actually more impactful uh, in terms of the pocketbook, striking directly the pocketbook of American families than even the insurance premiums, which are for a, in large part offset by employers even still today. And that's a very good point. So let's dive into that. And, and uh, for listeners of the show out there, devoted ones, you might hear us use the term functionally uninsured. Ran across a stat today while researching for today's show that 40% of Americans can't afford to pay a surprise $400 bill without borrowing or selling an asset. Which is a problem, Chris, when the average <laughs> yeah. deductible, and I'm quoting um, from an article that just dropped today, the average deductible for an individual purchasing a bronze plan from the ACA marketplace in 2018 was over $6,000. Run through that number again. 40% of Americans today can't pay an unexpected $400 expense. The average deductible for a bronze plan from the exchanges is over $6,000. There seems to be a bit of a gap there. Even with the employer-based insurance, the average deductible now has risen to nearly $1,700. So there's a massive disconnect when it comes to the affordability of healthcare, even when uh, an American, an individual, a family has insurance coverage. And, and it goes back to your, your term, and I, I love it, functionally uninsured. This is the reason why in the same Kaiser report that, that talked about the cost of premiums going so high today, they talk about almost one in two Americans report skipping needed care in the past year, whether it's refilling a medication, whether it's seeing a physician for an acute need. Almost half now report skipping needed care. How does that square with the fact that we have nearly universal insurance coverage? You know, I love that word. Nearly universal insurance coverage, and over half of Americans say, it's still not affordable. I still can't get the care I need. They either put it off, don't want it, or choose to delay, which leads to complications or potential issues down the road. And then we all have to pay and dig into our pockets even more as it affects and hits the system. So definitely, definitely some problems there. Obviously, we wouldn't be hosting the show, if there weren't problems, we wouldn't have a company of Freedom HealthWorks. If there weren't problems, there weren't solutions to fix it. Um, anybody who's ever worked with us before knows that if you have a problem, let's hear some ideas. Let's hear some solutions. It's one thing to just complain about stuff, but it's another one to be on the other side of it, making solutions, bringing ideas to the table and say, hey, let's go out and fix these things. So with that being said, I want to build this uh, from really start on the state level because a lot of states have taken the lead within uh, what I'm going to call a direct primary care legislation saying that, hey, DPC will never and does not fall underneath insurance regulations. So I would tell, tell the listeners a little bit about what, uh, what you did within the state of Indiana uh, a couple of years ago, passing that, and then we'll go from the state level on up and, and build towards what's happening at the federal level. Certainly. Insurance, and, and people need to remember this, so many times the, uh, the healthcare debate and the health insurance debate get wrapped around the axle of federal policy. And people need to understand that insurance in all of its forms remains a state-governed apparatus. Uh, so health insurance is no different. And, and what a lot of states have done, now over, over half of the states have taken uh, really action to clarify the fact that direct primary care 
is not insurance. This is not a health plan. This is not something that state regulators of insurance need to get involved with. Uh, It's sad that we have to make that clarification, but a lot of states, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, several states were having issues where insurance regulators were starting to look at these practices if they needed to stick their nose in. And and so uh, what the, the legislatures then did um, one by one is to go ahead and pass what we call DPC enabling legislation or really clarification uh, legislation where they say that this is not insurance, it shall not be insurance, it shall not be regulated as insurance, and then they'll lay out a definition of what direct care or direct primary care is. And so this is an admirable movement among states. The the one um, issue sometimes that people have is that when they define direct primary care, there can be some variance in in what that definition looks like. Um, so the states have taken the lead in this. And to jump then to the federal level, where, where do the feds come in in this? Well, in, in large part through the tax code. What we're talking about today with the Primary Care Enhancement Act and why anybody should be concerned with this obscure piece of legislation that's now winding its way through the House of Representatives is a simple tweak to the Internal Revenue Code that does what many of the state legislatures have already done. It just simply declares that direct primary care is not a health plan. It would seem to be self-evident, but it's very important because within the Internal Revenue Code, there are provisions for individuals that have high-deductible health plans coupled with HSAs, and they prohibit uh, really contribution to a health savings account if someone has an additional health plan. Well, if you're not sure whether a direct primary care membership in a practice is a health plan or is not a health plan, you can run into some kind of trouble. Um, This is simply a clarifying statute that would remove the mystery in terms of how the federal government looks at direct primary care and really help those individuals who, uh, many of them, as we cited earlier, are moving from traditional insurance to more of a high deductible type plan or something where they pay a lot more out of pocket regardless. And direct primary care is a fantastic solution for those folks trapped behind that high deductible to actually access care whenever they need it. Well, this just clears it up and says, great, those things are very complimentary. The federal tax code will not stand in the way any longer of people using their HSAs to purchase direct primary care services or to have uh, a direct primary care membership alongside of a high deductible health plan. I appreciate the the, the distinction there. And what this all follows a 2014 letter from the IRS commissioner at that point in time, uh, Mr. John Kaskinen who said very grayly that this probably doesn't, a DBC arrangement probably does not fall within the confines of HSA eligible, but there was no actual official ruling. So some practices have been operating in this gray area. And so this legislation is, a, is an effort to really shore that up and say, hey, this is, this is a good thing. This isn't a gym membership. This is actual care being delivered. Certainly. And, and before anybody out there right now, who is a member of a direct primary care practice and they're using their HSA to pay those fees before you get nervous. Let's just say this is a bill to clarify that that's okay. Um, Right now there is also competing evidence that says absolutely. Yes. Direct primary care expenses are qualified medical expenses under the internal revenue code. So like I said, it's, this is not so much a changing of, what's happening or a changing of the law as much as it is clarification, clearing up a murky part of the revenue code that 
frankly contradicts other parts of the federal code that already say that this is not a health plan, direct primary care is not a health plan. So you have these this strange situation where different parts of federal law actually contradict each other. This is simply an Shocking. attempt. This is simply an attempt <laughs> to clean that up. And I, and I appreciate you uh, mentioning earlier the the efforts in Indiana uh, a couple years ago to push forth legislation at the state level to um, make that clarification here in in our home state. And uh, that was a very proud moment. I think anybody involved in that would say the same thing because it was one of the few efforts that was truly bipartisan, truly unanimous. And and today with what we see in the news and current events, just the, the pure acrimony on Capitol Hill uh, between the two the two competing factions, here was something that everybody looked at and said, yeah, this makes a ton of sense. These are practices that are making it, making great quality care more affordable and more accessible. Why don't we help people access these? and help them pay for them with the savings that they've already accumulated that are devoted to their own health care. It was a great effort, like a great bipartisan effort on behalf of the legislature. We thank Governor Holcomb for, for signing that into law. And so Indiana was among the vanguard of states that were uh, passing this type of legislation. I'm, I'm glad the feds are finally clearing up their act. Well, if it's any precedent for the federal government, how many no votes uh, did you have when you're giving testimony and while uh, each section of this bill was going through the General Assembly in the state? Zero. Zero no votes on well, and either I would say, side of the aisle. Yeah, and, and it really ran the gamut. It's not simply a political party thing, but you had different constituencies, uh, or I should say different legislators representing different constituencies, from all the way from, from the most rural areas of the state to the urban core. Uh, and all of them looked at this and said, are you telling me this is going to make it easier for my constituents, if they so choose, to have access to care, to have an alternative, to have, uh, again, more options and they all said, great, this is perfect. Who would stand in the way of this? Right? And the answer is that really there is no reason for anyone to, and there's no reason at the federal level other than simply the partisan inertia that exists. There's no reason for anyone to stand in the way of the Primary Care Enhancement Act. So let's talk about that. The uh, Primary Care Enhancement Act in bill form right now, like we said, in the House of Representatives, H.R. 3708. Yeah, it's um, the primary sponsor is a Representative Blumenauer, a Democrat from Oregon. And um, it's a very uh, succinct bill, which is wonderful, compared to some of the health care bills that emerged from Capitol Hill. Page and a half? It's a page and a half. <laughs> so, And the ACA was thousands, tens of thousands could of Could have been. I don't know if anyone ever actually got through the whole thing. I don't think anybody did read it. <laughs> they passed it, though. But this, it says very simply, and I'm quoting, a direct primary care service arrangement shall not be treated as a health plan. Period. End of story. And it goes on then to attach some limitations to that. And we can talk about how those might be problematic. But for the most part, that first line is fantastic. When you get into then the difficulty of defining direct primary care, and I know why that has to be done uh, simply to score it with the CBO and try to put a, a budgetary impact around the legislation, then some problems occur. And so, again, I, I want to say that the spirit of the bill is certainly admirable, and it's certainly in line with what the states have already taken the lead in doing, and it clears up that ambiguity we talked about in the federal code. Now, when they try to define direct primary care a certain way, we have problems. There are certain carve-outs that they um, have inserted into the bill's text. Uh, One, they attempt to impose an arbitrary cap on monthly direct primary care fees to a given practice. Uh, That really makes no sense at all, because as we know, different 
Price points prevail throughout the country. The whole point of direct primary care is that a physician can set his own prices so that his patients can afford them. And that level of of affordability is going to be vastly different in Manhattan versus Manhattan, uh, Kansas, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Another thing it does, it, it, it carves out certain things that are becoming more prevalent within the, we'll call the direct care movement. But um, certainly it, it carves out specifically the provision of prescription drugs. Well, we've talked about this on, on previous episodes. Many practices are starting to dispense on site, which is a tremendous boost to compliance among their patients when you don't have to go somewhere else to fulfill a prescription. Oh, cost and, savings and convenience. Absolutely. There's studies that say that, that when people get their generic blood pressure medication or something at um, their physician's office, the compliance something like 96% compared to 67% if they're forced to drive just across the street to a drugstore, pick up that prescription. Yeah, it's an excellent point. So carving things out like that don't make sense. And if they would take a look at the way that the direct primary care movement and the direct care movement in a larger sense is evolving, they would see that um, really the, the correct way to go about this is to place as few restrictions as possible on um, the definition of eligible direct primary care. So take the approach that primary care can be all these things because right now they want to kind of shoehorn it into, okay, it has to meet these set of criteria here rather than opening it up. Like you said, that first line, a direct primary care membership is not a health plan. Why not just leave it at that? It would be wonderful. I know <laughs> as a lawyer, we have to define those terms. And so it. I, I think the definition is is necessary, but when they write that definition, they need to be as um, broad and all-encompassing as possible. Because the beauty of direct primary care and this movement is that it does it does evolve and shift and morph to fit the needs of individuals on the ground using those services. And so you have to give as much latitude as possible to the physicians who are carrying out those services to sculpt those according to their patients' needs. Where do specialists fall within a piece of legislation like this? We, we know we have a lot of demand from specialists saying, hey, how can I get my cardiology practice into this? Or uh, optometry dentists are starting to take on membership plans. Where do they fall within a primary care enhancement bill? Great question. And one that I will say I raised two years ago with the Indiana legislation. Everyone focuses on direct primary care because it is the most common, the most prevalent form of direct care. But primary care, though it is the foundation of healthcare, is obviously not the only part of healthcare. The direct care movement, which encompasses more than simply primary care, is just as critical to to um, I guess take take some of the restrictions off of those specialists who would like to practice under this model. It is starting. Um, I think it's important we don't lose sight. This we would never say let's not pass direct primary care enabling legislation at a state or federal level simply because it did not include specialty medicine. But we need to not lose sight that specialists are following right behind the primary care docs and that as more and more patients flock to the direct primary care model, there are many of those patients saying, well, great, I need to see a cardiologist. I need to see another type of specialist. Where is the equivalent direct care specialist that I can go see now? And direct primary care docs are starting to ask us, we know that, for those types of options. Mm-hmm. You get patients who are used to paying cash now and say, hey, this is an awesome thing. I don't have to mess with premiums or deductibles or co-pays or anything along those lines. How can I stay in this little environment? How can I stay within this ecosystem? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it, it goes back to the, the notion um, and really where we started the program today is that the cost of, uh, I should say the cost, the prices in healthcare, because cost is a function of price, right? The, the prices in healthcare have become so murky and, and so out of control in, in terms of their level that people are forced to be better consumers today. And the fact that we've seen this mass movement, uh, I saw a stat that in uh, 2007, I think 85% of adults, uh, and this is from the CDC, 85% of adults that had insurance were enrolled in a more comprehensive traditional type plan. And over that period, I think the number almost fell in half with the mass movement away from something where your, your insurance pretty much picks up the entire cost. You're not even going to think about it to where now you have a high deductible, you are spending your own money in terms of a health savings account or out-of-pocket expenses, you're becoming a much sharper consumer. And when people do that, they start to ask questions about price and they start to demand that transparency. So it's a natural function that the people, the types of patients who would enjoy the price transparency and, and really the low, clearly posted prices within a direct primary care setting, when they do need what we'll call downstream care, they're asking those same questions. Show me a price tag. Show me an all-in cost. Don't tell me to consume the service first, and you'll tell me later what I just spent. Oh, we can't. Yeah. A consumer cannot afford to do that anymore. Like I said, going back, most people can't scrounge up $400 out of their bank account for any type of emergency situation. Now, knowing the price of a healthcare service, that's going to be huge for them. And whether they like it or not, a lot of people are kicking and screaming, now the high deductible plans are really becoming much and much more prevalent than they ever were before. You know, sometimes you got to break, uh, you got to break some eggs to make an omelet, or you got to break some bad habits and get people saying, "Hey, you've been spoiled for a very, very long, long, long time." Now, you know, to keep using bad sayings, the the, uh, the chickens are coming home to roost. Now we have to figure out a way to move forward with this with transparent pricing that you can't just slap your insurance card down and say, "I want whatever this gets me, and this better get me a lot." And, and the market in terms of consumers voting with their feet, that's what's taking place today. And as it happens so many times with the law, the legislators and, and lawmakers are always scrambling to catch up, right? And that's what's happening here is that we've got an outdated tax code and um, they're really struggling. They're scrambling to catch up and they should be uh, because those types of, of trends and that type of demand that's been building and building and building based on these trends we've seen, is not going away. And the more that lawmakers and, and, and the tax code stands in people's way of actually spending their own money the way they see fit on their own health care that, that actually suits them the best, you're just going to see that type of pressure build and build and build. So I'm hopeful that the Primary Care Enhancement Act of 2019 will see the light of day and will emerge from committee. Right now it's in the House uh, Ways and Means Committee. Um, hopefully it emerges from committee and you know makes its way through um, both chambers of Congress and can be signed into law. But if it doesn't happen this year, because there are some other things making news uh, just today as we speak, <laughs> a lot of activity, uh, perhaps not essential, I hope that it comes up again next year. And I know it will. And it will come up again in 2021 and 2022 until action is is carried out to actually relieve this pressure that's been building. Um, because like I said, lawmakers are often scrambling to, to catch up with what the market is doing, and this is no different. And as I, would, I would say that uh, in closing that it is good to see the states taking a lead on this issue because they recognize the importance to their citizens and to the localities and the communities that are represented at a state level. 
Absolutely. And, and the states are often um, leaders when it comes to these types of things, simply because there are more of them and they can perhaps be a little more nimble and they can experiment. And that's exactly the model that the framers had set up, right? 50 little lab experiments. No, it wasn't 50 at the time. I get it. But the point is they wanted to see, you know, that kind of experimentation take place and that's what's happened. And so as the States have taken the lead, um, they, they have seen tremendous growth in, in, in innovation like direct primary care and, and the results speak for themselves. There's no magic to it. It, it really, we've talked about this on, on, on past programs that uh, what direct primary care does uh, whether it's for an employer, for an individual, for anybody who is subject to the high cost of healthcare today, it trades what we'll call relatively low cost primary care for high cost downstream specialty and hospital care. That's it. And the numbers bear themselves out, right? With a direct primary care doctor, when you remove those barriers, and, and let's face it, we talk a lot about health savings accounts and high deductible plans, but deductibles in themselves are barriers, and we, we know how unaffordable they can mm-hmm. be. If you remove those barriers without removing the consumer discipline that is imposed by a high deductible plan, you have a winning combination. And we're seeing that happen today. We're seeing that play out in many different spheres, whether it's an individual with one of these plans in a direct primary care environment or employers that sponsor the lives that go into these direct primary care practices. They're seeing increases in their primary care consumption and and tremendous decrease in their their downstream care, the more expensive type of care. Well, Adam, always a pleasure to chat. It's always very educational. And there's these fun little topics we get to really dive into that we don't really see uh, during the normal course of the business day. So thanks for doing the show with us tonight. Thank you, Chris. I enjoy it. These are, these are fun topics, uh, very current, um, very much in the news. And, and I would encourage Anyone out there that's listening today that um, has an interest in trying to drive this process forward or getting involved or just wants to learn more, to reach out to us at freedomhealthworks.com. Shoot us a note. Always happy to lend another um, another body to the effort in trying to get these things done. And if anybody's interested in looking closer at the legislation, it is House Resolution 3708. That's HR 3708. Go ahead and send a letter to your congressman, congresswoman, and uh, like Adam said, get involved in the process and help make this a better place to live. That's it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and stay tuned for more episodes coming from us in the future. Thank you for listening to Healthcare Americana. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podchaser, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your friends and colleagues to download and listen to all Healthcare Americana shows at freedomhealthworks.com.